This morning is Sunday morning. It is January 28th. The year is 2007. And our message this morning is crossing the Jordan. I put that word the in there so you wouldn't think I was talking about that television program. (laughs) Crossing the Jordan. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke 3. Y'all surprised I didn't start in Genesis? I know our church has more of a Hebraic influence in it than most. That's not because we're Jewish. Uh, As far as I know, nobody in here is anything but pure Gentile. But it's because we fell in love with a Jewish king. It's because we found out that through these Jewish scriptures that we've all inherited, the very words of life are there. If you didn't know what's written on the front of our pulpit here, it's Hebrew. It's written from from left to right. And that says, Yeshua... Hamashiach. Most people are surprised to find out that when we cry out Jesus, we're not even calling out the right pronunciation of the first century Jew's name. His name was Yeshua. In northern Israel, they pronounced it more like Yeshu. And yet, he still answers when we call. Are you annoyed when somebody doesn't get your name right? In Louisiana, Matthew was called Piro. In Texas, we call him Perot, like Uncle Ross. Uh, I'm getting but I can't tell you the number of people in our lives that have walked up to Matt and said, uh, Hello, Matthew Parrot, Pirot. They, they don't know what to say. And God's not annoyed that we don't get His name right. He knew we were Gentiles when, we called, when He called us. But we have an obligation to learn about the culture that He revealed Himself in. He revealed Himself to us as a first century Jew for a reason. Everything about the land of Israel, everything about their dress, their food, their surroundings, even the geography was meant to reveal something about God to us. And this morning I wanted to tell you about the Jordan River. In Hebrew, this is He-Yardin. The word Jordan never appears in the Bible as simply Jordan River. It always shows up with the article the, the Jordan. This is because it's an important river. We have a map over on this side of the church on the left is uh, the more northern area called the Galilee. The southern area is on the right, and this is where the Negev is in Jerusalem. It's It's the southern area. The River Jordan runs from the northernmost part of Israel all the way down to the southernmost part of Israel. It runs some 200 miles, the full length of the country. And its name in Hebrew means the descender because it is descending down through Israel. But much like most Hebrew names... The word descender is not just about descending. In Israel, this river became synonymous with judging. In fact, it became known as a river of judgment because everything in the Bible, when they marked trees and mountains and places, had a significance. If God said an event occurred in a specific place, it's because He wanted you to associate something with it. When I say Statue of Liberty, you ought to think of freedom and immigrants, right? That's what that statue is about. When I talk about Washington, D.C., you ought to think about our nation's capital. Well, Israel was no different. And there were several times in their history when judgment was associated with this river, more particularly the crossing of it. You remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai and they receive a revelation about God's character contained in something that they called the Torah, the law. And as they received that revelation, they marched right on straight up to the edge of the Promised Land, which was marked by the River Jordan. They were all counted in that place. When you were counted in Israel, much like this church, what you did was you put a line right down the center. 
And to move from one side, the uncounted, to the side that was counted, called the community of the living, called the prince, of Israel, the prince with God, Israel, you had to pay a price. Each person paid a price in silver to cross over from what was considered outside of God to what was considered in God's fellowship, the community of believers. In Greek, that's ecclesia. It's where we get the word church, the group of called out ones. And when you paid that price, you would say, I am crossing over. And it meant that you were crossing over from death to life. Well, there was a problem. They were all counted. They were all counted in the census as people who were princes with God. They all wore the title as one who had crossed over from death to life. But when they got to the next boundary, the Jordan, they were scared of what was on the other side. And they would not cross over. So a second time, now 40 years later, after 40 years of wandering, have you ever made a wrong choice that caused you to wander confused and dazed a little bit? I've not only had days like that, I think I've had weeks and months, if not years, like that in my life. Where you look back and say, if only I had turned left instead of right. But you know what? Those experiences make you who you are. They're part of the old guy dying away so that you can walk a new life. You know, as a parent, one of the hardest things to do is let your children make mistakes. Those of you that are parents can say amen. And what's your most natural desire? Oh, no, 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 don't do that, because I did that once and it hurt. How'd you find out it hurt? God lets us learn, and I'm thankful for that. So they come to the River Jordan a second time, and they are counted again. God wanted to know the name of every person who was going to cross over the Jordan. Two kinds of crossing over. Crossing over in a census, from death to life. Another kind of crossing over was from the wandering, wandering about in the desert, into the promised land. And when you crossed the River Jordan, you were making a judgment and God was making a judgment about you. He was saying you are worthy and as a person you were saying, God, I accept. I'm excited. I want what you've promised. He's counting you worthy of being able to cross over and you are judging that He is worth crossing over. So this river in Israel symbolized something to the people. In their history, it had been the place of great failure where they didn't cross over. It had also been a place of great triumph where they did cross over. And so it was a symbol of judgment for them. By the way, like salvation, this river began and ended in Israel. This book that we have is a book of the Jews, by the Jews, and first and foremost, for the Jews. It just came to us because of their temporary disobedience. If you don't understand that concept, please review Romans 11. It will explain it perfectly. Salvation starts and ends in Israel. The River Jordan starts from the northernmost part of Israel called Mount Hermon. And it's beautiful. When I was there last, it was snow-capped. And the snow had begun to melt and it forms three tributaries. The Dan, the Hapani, and the Panias. Those three rivers... Three tributaries form one central highway of water that goes right through the center of Israel like a dividing line, a marker in everybody's life. And it flows all the way down into something called the Dead Sea where it empties and there is no exit. At the beginning, it's the source of life. At the end, for those who didn't find life, it's nothing but death. Jesus is a dividing line in history. 
He is a thing with which God can lay out a line that everybody can see and say, you either get in this, submerge yourself in it, and cross through to the promises of God, or your refusal to do so is like a dividing line. You judge that God was not worthy, and you end up in death. So the Jordan River is a place that in Luke 3, a man shows up to begin to speak. Y'all turn with me to Luke 3. You already there? Come on, where's my young brothers that say, Been there! That's right. (laughs) In Luke 3, there is a reason that John the Baptist shows up at this particular river, this particular site. It was meant to be significant. You know, when people lay out the geography of cities, they do this. Anybody from Louisiana that's ever been to Jackson Square, they face that statue of Andrew Jackson a certain way so that it didn't look like he was retreating from the British. There is significance in the way that this word is laid out. The reason that Luke introduces John the Baptist in a certain place is to call to memory something from people's lives, something from their history that they understood. You know, before Xbox and Nintendo and text messaging and Internet, people actually did something called reading. And they had read the scrolls. They had heard the stories. Their culture promoted... Look, all the young people are laughing at that. (laughs) Yeah, they read. They had learned something so that when other people referenced it, they knew what it was about. We do this with movies, you know. If I say The Force, you know I'm talking about... Star Wars. Star Wars, that's right. I'm tempted to do a bunch of movie quotes, but we won't do that. The spirit of entertainment is trying to pull me around. (laughs) I'm teasing. How many charismatics does it take to turn off a light bulb? Why four? It does. It takes four. It takes one to throw the switch and four to rebuke the spirit of darkness. (laughs) That joke works with any denomination. If it's Baptist, you say it takes one to throw the switch and four to form the committee. Uh, Luke 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Idaria, and uh, Trachonitis and Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene. Boy, what a bunch of meaningless gobbledygook, right? Luke was a historian, and the Bible separates itself from the religious books in a very unique way. I have in this library next to me the Book of Mormon. And it mentions places and peoples that you cannot go to because they have never been found. Peoples that there is no record of. I have in this library the Koran, and it mentions mythical places and mythical people. The Bible is written in such a way that you can verify what happened and when it happened. When you go to Israel today, there are more than 350 cities that have been identified as being right where the Bible says they are. And when Luke begins to tell the story of Jesus in the New Testament, he tells you who is in power in every area so that his writing can be corroborated. Is that right? That's what I was trying to say. See, everybody helps me preach. I love this church. So that it can be verified with other historical documents. God wanted this to be the case. Have you heard of the concept of blind faith? There's no such thing. He gives you every possible reason to trust Him. And this book is written in a way to inspire you to investigate. The proverb says it's to God's glory to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. He is looking for kings. 
He's looking for you to do something noble, which is look beyond what was right in front of your face, to search for Him, though He's not far from each one of us. Acts 17, in the 26 verses, He even manipulated the times and places you would live by setting boundaries for you because He wants you to reach out and find Him. God has been working in your life since you were knee-high to make you reach out and find Him. And you say, well, I have. I've been saved. He wants you to find Him in every area of your life. When you're at Walmart, Lord, what purpose am I here for? I came to buy bread, but I really belong to You. What do You want of me? I'm at work. I'm here to make loans. But Lord, what do You really want of me? Lord, I'm here to sell insurance. But what is it that You want of me this day, this moment, in this task? That makes Him our Lord and that's what He's after. So Luke begins writing a story about Jesus. He verifies the times and places, places that you can go to today. You can read in history books about these rulers because he wanted you to be able to verify what he said. If he said Jesus did a a miracle in a town, he said it was the town of Nain where there was a widow. This was a town of 50 people. If this was not true in the day that it was written, he would have been denounced as a heretic. These were verifiable facts. He didn't say, I met a stranger in New York City. He said, I met a widow in name. This is the kind of gospel we have. Okay, starting with verse 2. During the high priest of Ananias and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country and around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He says, in the country or the region around the Jordan. You know what is great about that? The Jordan goes from north to south Israel. And the whole valley around the Jordan is, is the region that he preached in. The Word of God came to Israel because it had been promised to Israel, first and foremost. And what was the preaching about? Preaching about baptism and repentance. You know, the funny thing is Israel had a hard time receiving this message. For the same reason that Americans have a hard time receiving the true gospel. Israel looked and they heard. They heard John the Baptist talking about needing to repent. Repent in Hebrew means to teshuba. This means you're traveling down one road and you're going to turn and get on a different path because that one didn't work for you. And Israel hears this message, repent. Why did they think they didn't need to repent? They saw themselves already as God's people with no need to change. Americans are the same way. Are you a Christian? Of course, I'm an American. Do you believe in God? Oh, yeah. Who in this country doesn't believe in God? I mean, there are a few uh, atheists, but not not many sincere. 76% of America believes they're going to heaven. 76. The number's way over 50% that has serious doubts about their neighbors. What does that tell you? Most everybody in America believes they're going to heaven, but they're not sure their neighbors are. Why? Because of what... John the Baptist begins to preach. He says, you need to get baptized and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Our lives are supposed to show the commitment we say we have. Our lives are supposed to bear out our names. When we call ourselves Christian, this means little Christ. You are a chip off the big block. That means that you have a responsibility for your life to mimic Christ. Somebody says, I am an NFL football player. You expect them to put on cleats and shoulder pads at some point, don't you? Somebody says they're an ice skater. You look for ice skates, don't you? 
And yet, Christian is a title we can all wear without any evidence. We say it's a private matter. It's between me and God. Except that the Word says it's evidenced by fruit. I didn't come here this morning to put down on any other faiths, whether real or imagined faiths. I came here this morning to tell you about something true, something real that I found, something that has made a difference in my life. John the Baptist came and he preached about baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Luke is a detailed gospel. And he begins by telling you who all's in power, where the preaching took place, and that it was at a specific place. He goes on to begin telling the people, I have come to remove every obstacle. All of the mountains that are in the way are going to be squished. All of the valleys that are too hard for you to cross will be raised. I have come to make God's Word understandable because I am going to announce someone who is the perfect representation of God. In his life and in his actions, you will see what God is about. I'm going to announce someone that will walk around with the Spirit of God in such a way that when you see him do and say things, it will teach you about God. This is what John came to announce. And he said that all mankind would see God's salvation. Interestingly enough, there's a man whose name meant mankind will see God. You know what it is? Elisha, not Jah. Some people would say Elisha. For some reason that's not caught on in biblical reading. Elisha, his name meant God's salvation. And in his life we can also see events at the Jordan River where mankind would see God. But before we get there, which by the way is going to be 2 Kings 5 so that the young men can say, been there when we get there, I want to read you something else. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Come on now. Is that how you want to be addressed? Does that build big churches with gymnasiums? No. We give away donuts and gift certificates. We pamper and pillow and pad because we are so scared we'll offend an American. We are so upset that in a land ruled by democracy where all the people have an equal voice, somebody will get offended. Friends, the best thing that can happen to you is you really thoroughly get offended. Because when you find thorough, unadulterated offense in you, it pushes you to a place where you find out that you are either right or wrong. And it gives us a chance to change. When I got born again, I was shaking my fist in the air mad because somebody had offended me. They basically told me that just because I got wet when I was a kid and came out of a baptismal, and because I could quote more Scripture than most people, that did not make me saved. They read to me Matthew 7 and said, Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. And it was the whole last part of that verse that just had me all tied up in knots inside. I was saying, Lord, Lord. I could quote Romans 10, 9 and 10. I was winning Bible awards in school. But my behavior certainly was not the will 
of the Father who is in heaven. And it shook me to the core. Also, this crazy Indian that was my best friend had been born again. And he was a better man than I was. He didn't hurt people. He didn't try to go out of his way to do things that were wrong. He was a sinner that needed to be saved, but he wasn't like me. And he had been born again. And this was working on me. Because I had the talk, and I didn't have the walk. And now this guy didn't want much to do with me, or that's what it looked like to me. I saw that he had come apart and was separate. And at first I was mad. I was angry at him. I was angry at God. Because I didn't understand. And it all forced me to a place of offense and anger where God could show me kindness and compassion in the right way. So I hope you get a little angry today. That's why we put Gene by the door. He'll keep you from running out. (laughs) Okay, so verse 8. He says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Are we preaching a gospel of works? No, we're preaching a gospel that shows you our faith by what we do. And the clear evidence in the Word from the beginning of the testimony till the end is that your faith must be evidenced by fruit. Your faith must be evidenced by fruit. And while this is corny and cliche, I ask you this morning, if you were put on trial right now, you, like O.J., have got all of the world's cameras on you, you have a defense attorney, and you have a prosecutor, and you are trying to be convicted of a crime, being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would they pull out your church attendance records and laugh? Church attendance is easy. That's just the place where you start. If God's secret scrolls were unrolled and the deeds of your life were shown, would there be anything in there that you could circle with a red pen and say, oh, this is the mark of a Christian? Or would it simply be words? See, I desire to live something that is more than just words. And I confess to you today, my congregation, my friends, my family, too often in me, it's just words. I want to live in my life what I say from my mouth. Amen. When you say He is Lord, that means He is your owner and controller. You better live like it or else you've deceived yourself. Billy Graham said America had received enough weak and dead Christianity to inoculate it from the real thing. Just like you'd been inoculated from a virus. We have churches on every corner. We walk around with Christian bumper stickers and crosses. Right? The cross has become so cliche and so ridiculous that heavy metal rock bands wear them. They wear them while they sing about the devil. Why? Because it's meaningless now. Because Christians have cried wolf so much with our clothing, with our outward appearance, and been so short on substance. Saying somebody has to be different. We can point and say the churches are full of hypocrites. And they are. Why don't we be real Christians? Well, because it's hard. Well, if it was easy, anybody would do it. God is looking for those that will lean on His Spirit, that will depend upon His mercy, but not use it as a license for immorality. He is looking for people that are sincere and have judged Him worth following. John the Baptist came to a specific place. 
He gave them instructions. Look at verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. What a great response. They said, what should we do? If these had been Americans, they would have said, well, what should we believe? What should our creed be? What should our doctrine be? Look, we'll write a new statement of faith. What should it say? These were Jews, and in their culture, it had been rooted into them that what you believe is shown by what you do. They didn't talk about believing God. They talked about walking with God. They didn't talk about trusting God. They talked about the times they did something that showed trust. So their response to John the Baptist's message is, what should we do? I'm hoping that when we get to the end of this message, it will be clear to you that an action is needed. Not an action that causes you to walk to the front of a church. How ridiculous. It's not walking in a church that makes you saved. It's walking with God in a world that makes you saved. I'm not looking for a confession in front of Christians. How easy would that be? I'm not looking for a baptism in front of Christians. How sad. That's like fishing in an aquarium. I'm looking for a faith that expresses itself outside the walls of the church. That's where we have staked our claim. That's what this ministry is built on because that's what we see in the Word. We see something that is centrifugal, that spins outwards, that meets your neighbors, that reaches out to your loved ones, that cares enough about somebody else to tell them about life. The people said, what should we do? John answered them, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. I want you to get this. He did not say bounce a check. He did not say you should give a hundred dollars that God should give you back a thousand. That is a gospel of greed and is a ridiculous misuse of the word. He said if you have two, share with somebody who has none. God is looking for a loving equality among believers. One that meets other people's needs. Not one that extorts Nick so that I can have. That's not God. The church has never practiced that. God does not want you poor so I can have a nice suit. God does not want you without so I can fly in a jet. This is a ridiculous fishing of funds instead of fishing for men. I don't care how popular it is, how many people endorse it or write books about it, or how easy it is to raise money on TV. This is not what the Gospel is. The Gospel is when I have two tunics, I share with somebody who has none. The Gospel is... Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He didn't say, don't be a tax collector. He didn't say, don't lend money. Amen, Gene? I lent money most of my secular career. He didn't say, don't do those things. You know what he says? Don't collect any more money than you are required to. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. He didn't say don't be soldiers. Sorry, Mennonites, Amish, and everybody else. He didn't say don't do that. He said don't sin while doing it. God is not looking for you to be removed from the world. He's not saying people can't be salesmen and be Christians. He's not saying people can't be tax collectors or accountants or anything else. In fact... He wants you to be those things and He calls it the salt of the earth. But He wants you to do it differently. He wants you to do it with integrity. Saints, integrity is not what you do in a church. Integrity is not even what you do out in front of all the world. Integrity is what you have when no one is looking. 
And if you don't have it in the privacy of your own home, when no one else is around, then you simply don't possess it. And you need to ask God to give it to you. I wish it was a pill we could all take. It's not. It's a muscle that has to be exercised. Consistently choosing God to be Lord. Consistently choosing Jesus as your Lord. That is how it's obtained. This place where John came to give this message was the region of the Jordan River. And he was causing people to be immersed into the Jordan, the judgment of God, so that they could walk out in new lives, doing something different on a new road. The biggest obstacle that the people had was they thought they were already on the right road. What American doesn't? We're Americans. We're better than the rest of the world, right? Our wars are simply a means to teach our young people geography because they wouldn't know where another country was otherwise. God has a message for all of us. And it's not, I'm okay and you're okay. It is, you must change daily. You must become more like Him daily. Quit looking for a place to coast. I'm glad that when you were seven, you confessed Jesus. That is great. What have you done for Him today? He's looking for a people that produce His fruit. John the Baptist came to the River Jordan with a specific message, and he turned some people away who wanted to be baptized. He said, first do something that shows the intent of your heart, then come back and be baptized. Churches today measure their success on who was baptized. They count them and give awards to each other like notches in their belts. But what about the changed life? I was a part of a church that had spiritual emphasis weeks with young people like Brent and Kelly and people this age, right? We all ran down to an altar on a Friday and said, Oh God, I'm sorry! Friday night, we were in the same places we always had been, doing the same things we had always done. Come on, ladies. How many of you would accept an apology from your husband for slapping you across the face if immediately after he apologized, he slapped you across the face. How many times do you allow that before you say, ooh, this is insincere. And yet we mock God's grace by doing the very same thing. Saints, there is a place for fear in the house of God mixed with freedom and love and joy. This river symbolized many things to the people. Let's go to 2 Kings and look at it. If you're looking for 2 Kings, you'll first be in Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. I'll put those on the wall eventually. If you struggle to find books in your Bible, turn to the table of contents. There is no shame in that. Number one, the books in the English Bible are in a different order than the books in the Hebrew Bible. Number two, what good does it... Do to know where all of the books in the Bible are and not do what any of them say. Like what one of our newer members said, I got tabs in my Bible. That's great. Easier to find what you should do. Y'all in 2 Kings 5? Yes. What was that? Been there. There we go. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. We are at a particular place in history. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Amram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. I want you to hear that. The Word says that no king is saved by the size of his army. I can hear Gary Kinchin getting excited right now. It's his favorite song. 
It says, Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. It comes from the Psalms that teach a horse is a vain hope for salvation. Victory only comes through God. What does that mean about any success you've had in your life thus far? It came through Jesus. Every blessing that you have came through Jesus, whether you recognized it or not. And the beautiful thing about Him is He doesn't require you to love Him or recognize Him for Him to be kind to you. He's been kind to you long before you were aware of His existence. Paul said it this way. He's caused the the sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He's given us crops in our seasons. This is why Psalm 19 says, even the creation witnesses about a benevolent God. God is not an angry God with a stick over your head waiting to crush you. He's longing for you. He's hoping for you to recognize His glory called kavod in Hebrew. Kavod means the weightiness of God. His significance in every situation. He wants you to see Him in everyday events and choose to do what He wants you to do. Too often we've reduced religion to arguments about prepositions. Too often we've reduced religion to doctrinal statements. James clearly and boldly says that religion is worthless. The religion that counts is taking care of widows and orphans. This is pure and faultless, and against such there is no law. That's what James said. If your faith in Jesus has not produced in us the desire to take care of people, the desire to take care of people that we follow through on, then our religion is worthless. I'm thankful to be among the saints today. In so many ways, your lives shine bright, clear messages that your religion is not worthless. I'm not talking about the 60% of our lives. I'm talking about the 40% we're still struggling with. Or maybe it's 40-60. Who knows? This is a call, saints. The River Jordan is in our midst. Watch this. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Leprosy in the Hebrew does not necessarily mean leprosy. It means any skin disorder that is serious. It's various skin disorders. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, a city in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. I want you to hear this, saints. Naaman is a Gentile. People have gone out and captured a young girl. Let's not just make this any, I mean just a, a nameless young girl for a minute. Suppose for a moment it's Kelly. Okay, She's an Israelite. We're a conquering nation. We capture her. Kelly, how willing do you think you would be to tell us something good? Oh, look, you got a problem? My God can fix it. We just captured you. Think about that. She's been captured, saints. What if this were Caitlin? What would you say? Oh, don't do anything to help them. <laughs> I mean, I know about a God. He'll burn you. That's not what he said. Israel has been abused by the nations. There is no other nation that has been more persecuted than Israel. It's been more documented than any other persecution. 
Stalin killed them. Hitler killed them. They're thrown out of Spain, thrown out of all the countries in Europe and persecuted in the United States for no other reason than they were Jews. And yet, in that service, that hard service before God, the rest of the world is finding life in a Jewish king from a Jewish book. The 39 books called the Tanakh, starting with the five books of the Torah, are all Hebrew. The 27 books of the New Testament are all Hebrew, written by Hebrews. The world's mistreated them and yet they have given us beautiful things where we can find life in the way to be cured. Do you think we owe a debt to Israel? This is why I have prayer shawls and shofars and menorahs and mezuzahs and all these things in here. It's to create an awareness among the Gentiles who are like spoiled kids at Christmas. We've all received more gifts than we know what to do with and we don't even care where they came from. You ever had a five or six-year-old? You're opening all the gifts, right? This came from aunt so-and-so. And this came from cousin so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, whatever, open it. That's how we've been. No reverence for who brought us this. No reverence for what it cost them. All we do is look and say, oh, they don't believe. Their unbelief has meant life for you, saints. It's time for us to examine the culture, examine the words, learn about a true faith, not some Gentile perversion of it. This slave girl told her master how to be cured. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Oh, if there's salvation out there, I will buy it. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Oh, a letter from a diplomat and lots of money. Buy you salvation. Seems silly, doesn't it, when you read about it? But it goes on all over the place. Of course I'm a Christian. Do you know how much money I gave to the Catholic Church? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the religious right. Of course I'm a Christian. I am a charter member of such and such church. Yeah, but what do you do? It's great what you believe, where you belong, but what do you do? guy in Israel that I had the opportunity to meet founded an organization called Bridges for Peace got there in the 70's and he was excited he's sitting next to a Jewish woman on the plane and he says she said why are you coming to Israel he said because I believe the Jews are this and I believe the word is this and I believe in Jesus the Jewish king and I believe and I believe and I believe he went on for about 45 minutes thinking you know this has to impress her she says yes this is great but what do you do he was shocked he was from America. He'd never been asked a question like that. We talk so much about what we believe. God doesn't really care. Is that a surprise? Even the demons believe that Jesus is God. They shudder at His name. God doesn't care what you believe. He cares what you do. That shows where real faith is. Belief that produces action is biblical faith. Belief that produces inaction is just something that pacifies your conscience while you go straight to hell. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Well, at least he realized he wasn't. That's a good step above most kings. Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? I want you to hear this. He's not sent to political Israel. 
This man was not sent to be healed by the political entity that is the nation of Israel. You will look in the news and see that Israel, the political entity, makes mistakes, just like every nation does. He was sent to a man of faith in Israel to be cured by the religion of Israel, not the nation of Israel. You understand the difference? Can you say amen to the fact that not all of our politicians represent our best interests? be an interesting presidential election coming up, won't it? When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. The hope of Christianity is not that you go to heaven because that was not the hope of Judaism. Does that surprise you? Believe on Jesus, go to heaven. Like a little fairy tale, storybook. That is not what the hope of Judaism was. You'll never see that preached anywhere. You find me, biblical scholars, a verse in the Bible that says, believe on Jesus and go to heaven and I will kiss your feet right after washing them, very biblical, in front of the whole world. It doesn't say that. It talks about the kingdom of God coming to earth. God's kingdom extending from heaven to earth. Now, if you die before that happens, yes, you go to be in the presence of God. That is not your permanent place. You know what the hope of Christianity is? It's the same hope that Judaism had, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. This man came with a problem in his flesh. All of you have a problem in your flesh. Leprosy was a catch-all name for various diseases in the flesh. All of you have various diseases in your flesh. Some of the biggest disease sufferers in here are pride and selfishness, both fruits of the flesh. And what this prophet says is, hey, if you will go immerse yourself in Jordan, which, by the way, we're going to find out is Jesus, you will be cleansed and your flesh will be restored. This happens spiritually and it happens physically. This is why Jesus said the day is coming and has now come when those in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will rise. Daniel said some would rise to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. The whole 15th chapter of Corinthians is about this resurrection. Every trial that Paul is at in the book of Acts, he says, I'm on trial today because of the resurrection and my hope in that. I have the same hope as all the tribes of Israel. The hope is that you will resurrect from the dead and walk on this earth in a body that will never die in the kingdom that is God's kingdom. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Where? Thy will be on earth as it is in heaven. We, Jesus did not teach us to pray. We pray that we leave this old stinking world behind, that we could go to a place that is your kingdom called heaven that is not taught in the Bible. You know why it's not the hope of Christianity? Because it's not the hope of Judaism. And Judaism birthed Christianity. In fact, real Judaism and real Christianity are essentially the same thing. It's just that we've received the Jewish Messiah and understand His significance and His presence while the majority, but not all, of the nation He was meant for have not yet received Him. But Paul says all Israel will be saved. There is a day when all of Israel will be saved. And he said, if their cutting off meant life for you, what do you think their acceptance will mean? 
Life from the dead. Restored flesh. Naaman is here. He's at a dirty river in Israel. A river that came to mean judgment. A river that would later be symbolic of Jesus. And Elijah, whose name means seeing God's salvation, did not even walk outside to meet Him. That's insulting, isn't it? I mean, after all, he has all this money. He has this letter from his king. Elijah doesn't care about who the man is or what he has. He came to be healed, and that's what Elijah wants to give him. We need churches that do not care about people's reputations. They do not care about what they have. They just want to see people healed. They want to see people restored. You know, it is a difficult thing, but James said if you have a poor man in your fellowship and a rich man, don't mistreat the poor man by saying, hey, move over this guy can have your seat. How many churches do you think that's going on in right now this morning? The Word holds up a standard that says every human being has the divine image of God on them, in them, made according to that pattern, and every life is worth something. Lindy's not worth more than Mandy, and Lindsay's not worth more than Charlotte. All of you are important to God, and He paid a price for all of you. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that He would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh, His Elohim, and wave His hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Listen to this. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So He turned and went off in a rage. There is something so humbling about being an outsider and being told salvation is from the Jews. In fact, every great missionary story you've ever heard has to do with people from one area traveling across long distances to a place where nobody looks like them and nobody speaks their language and yet they bring the Word of truth and lives change. Why would God design the Gospel in such a way? Because it requires humility. It is a hard thing for a white man to go to a continent that is full of black people and bring them what is considered truth. They don't look alike. They don't speak the same language. How humbling is it for a nation to receive a message from an outsider? It is a hard thing for a Hispanic man to travel around the globe and meet Incans and Mayans and tell them about Jesus. They don't look alike. They don't speak the same languages. And that's exactly why God does it that way. There is something humbling about receiving the Gospel. In fact, it requires you to go, this way that I have been walking is not working out very well for me. It looked right. It felt right at first. But in the end, it keeps leading me into destruction after destruction. I need a new and better way. And God chose the smallest nation on the planet and people because they were insignificant to show us the right way. And it's contained in their writings. The 66 books of the Hebrew Bible. It tells us the right way to live. Naaman was upset. He said, hey man, where I'm from, there are certainly cleaner rivers. Couldn't I go to Farpar? Couldn't I go to Abana? Couldn't I go somewhere? Why do I have to go wash in this dirty, Semitic, muddy river? You know why he had to go there? Because it's the river that God chose. Why do I have to go to that little garage church? Well, because it's the church God chose for you. And if He didn't choose this church for you, then you need to be in the one that He chose for you. Why do I have to listen to that 32-year-old frumpy pastor? Because he's the one that God called. 
Maybe He called me because I'm hard for you to listen to. If you surround yourself by people that only tell you what a wonderful human being you are, that only tell you yes, yes, and yes, and yes, that path of least resistance will make you crooked quickly. You beware of a flattering tongue. In my life, I've suffered greatly by those. I would much rather have men at my side that will say, I don't think that's right. In fact, you ought to surround yourself by people that love you enough to tell you the truth instead of alienating them and pushing them away. He said, come on, man. You're telling me that this Jewish Christian thing is what I have to do. I have to go get immersed in Jesus. I kind of got my own Jesus. I got the Roman Catholic Jesus, right? little fishing lure on a cross. I got the cracker Jesus, the American Jesus, the one with blonde hair and blue eyes. Do I have to go get your Jesus? I got the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. I got any other gospel other than the one that this book contains. Do I really have to go get yours? Yes. Yes. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be truly cleansed. Saints, you better take stock of your lives and make sure you're in that way. Because the counterfeits are many and Jesus said they would be. But the fruit is how you know. There are worldwide organizations claiming to be in the name of Jesus. They emphasize family values. They have the best commercials on TV. They send people door to door. And yet their book is about a different Jesus. Be careful, saints. Be careful. The God that we serve is able to present Himself to you in more than just intellectual thought. He can touch you in your spirit and let you know what is and is not real. The world lies to us. It says any river is good enough. They all lead to the same place. They do not. Not all rivers lead to the same place. God chose a specific one and it starts and begins in Israel. Salvation is from the Jews. You remember in John 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman and said, Hey, your people said worship on this mountain. Mine say worship on this mountain. What do we do? He said, Woman, salvation is from the Jews. It's not from the Vatican. It's not from somewhere in Missouri. It's not from England. It's not from Spain. It's from the Jews. In this book, we find the way to be cleansed. In this book, we find the way to be restored. The Jordan River ran right through the middle of Israel. Listen to what he says. Verse 13. Naaman's servants. Don't you love servants? Think about this. These people are in forced labor, and yet they're being kind. They're being loving. They're being like Jesus would be. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God... I'm sorry, I skipped the whole verse. 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. I want you to understand something. The gospel doesn't make you good. The goal of the gospel is not to make you moral. It's not to sustain you the way that you are. It's to make you into the image of God which is better than you have ever been. The glorified body that we will receive will be like something that the world has never known. There was a teaching in this country when it began called Tabula Rosa. 
People come into the world, the blank slate, their environment determines what they are. And if your environment is good, then you're a good person. If your environment is bad, then you're a bad person. This flies in the face of the Hebrew Scriptures that says you were born corrupted. And that unless God restore you, you are corrupted. I want to find out where this river is. And I want to dip myself in this river as many times as it takes. I wish that it were just a natural river. And I wish we were talking about just a natural disease. But it's not. It's the man Jesus. Crossing the Jordan is like being baptized into Jesus and walking into the promised land. Turn with me to Joshua 3. Now this is a long passage, but this is our last one today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. There. I want you all to hear that. Steve beat you there. (laughs) When John the Baptist announced his ministry, he said, hey, I'm here to knock down the mountains, to raise up the valleys, to make a way for all of you to see the salvation of God. Elijah, whose name meant salvation of God, showed up in the very same place hundreds of years earlier to teach about a Gentile who would receive from Jews in slavery the way of salvation. And it was in the very same spot. That spot had significance because it would teach us about the man Jesus. Somebody that we had to be dipped in, immersed in, to cross through and walk as marked by. The first time that we really see this in the Scripture is when a man named Joshua, which is another way to say Yeshua or Yehoshua, Yahweh's salvation, had appeared. And He's leading Israel. Because their lives were examples for us so that we would learn. In fact, when John the Baptist did all of these things, he said, I want you to understand something. I'm baptizing you right now in the Jordan River, and that's water. But there's going to be someone who will come who will baptize you in His very Spirit, or else He will baptize you in fire. A one or the other kind of thing. Do you want to be baptized into Him, His character and who He is? Or do you like wheat want to be burned up with chaff and fire. He said, by the way, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat, he will gather into the barn and the chaff. He is going to burn because it's not good for anything. I don't know about you, but I I would like to be immersed in his character. I want to be changed into who he is. I want to reflect him. I want to be a chip off of the block. And he's even given us his spirit so that we can be empowered to do that. This is the first time we really see the Jordan showing up as a significant chapter in the Bible. And it is when a man whose name was the same as Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, shows up to lead Israel across it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim. Some of the young people laughed and said, wonder why they left there and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. You remember that word crossing? You liked that, didn't you, Kelly? She thought that was funny. Where they camped before crossing over. You remember the word crossing over? To the Hebrews, this meant all kinds of things, but mostly it meant crossing from death to life. They were in a place where they could judge that their way was right and stay, which was death, or they could cross over into something new, which was life. They practiced this in their census when they paid to cross from one side to another. Praise God, this price has been paid for you. 
But now they stand in front of a river where they previously had faced it and decided, "Mm -mm, it's too hard on the other side, I'm going to stay here. And now they are here for a second time ready to cross over. Saints, every time you face a situation and you know the good that God would want you to do and you don't do it, you've decided not to cross over, not to be counted among the redeemed, not to be in the fellowship of God's community. Every time you get to that same decision place and you decide to cross over, this is what you do. Verse 2, After three days the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people, When you see the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, your God, and the priest who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know the way to go since you have never been this way before. This way that is led by Yahweh God and those called by Him, His priest, and the Bible says all believers are priests and saints. This way is marked by His Spirit It's a way different than any that you've ever walked before. It's not something that you just write down and is rote memorization. It's not sacraments, and it's not mere doctrine. It is a life that says, Lord, what do I do now? And did you do it? It's a life that is led by the Spirit. Then you will know the way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards or two thousand cubits, Between you and the ark, do not go near it. It's interesting that all of Israel was to follow this ark that was symbolic of God's presence. They followed it everywhere that it went, but they followed at a distance of about 2,000 cubits. What year are we in? 2007, right? And that is how many years from Jesus' birth? Oh, that's right. We number our calendars by His birth. Jesus announced His ministry in the 30th year of his life. Do you think that this might be that all of Israel will follow behind the ark that is Jesus, the thing that houses the testimony, but they follow at a distance? You'll find out some remnant goes first, but we're waiting for the whole thing to happen. The same thing's true in our lives. There's a part of you that is already redeemed. You feel the presence and power of God and you want to follow. And there's a whole lot of you that's lagging behind going, what about me? And if I do that, what will happen to my business? And if I do that, will my husband really love me? And if I do that, will people respect me? The goal is to get it all to unite at the ark. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua, that was much the words of prophecy this morning. Dedicate yourselves. Trust the Lord. He wants to do something amazing among you. Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. You know when Israel will see that King Jesus is somebody anointed of God and is God's representative for them? when they see those who claim to follow Him actually following Him. This is why Paul said he made much of his ministry to us Gentiles in the hopes that it would arouse some of his own people to envy so that they would want to believe in the way that we do. So God is setting up a situation at the River Jordan where people will believe they will follow Him and this will cause the name that is, by the way, Jesus' name, to be lifted up. 
Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that He will certainly drive out before you. There's a bunch of sites here. Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites. You know what He needs to drive out from among you? Whatever wars against your desire to do God's will. Pick up verse 11. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all of the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the twelve tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. They are standing at the river Jordan. On the other side of this river is what God has promised them, the good life that God has promised you. The ark of God's presence is supposed to go into this water ahead of them and they are going to pass through behind it. John 6.44 says that a man cannot be saved unless the Spirit of God draw him. You know what this means for you, though? God is not asking you to do anything, not in any situation at any time in your life where He has not already gone ahead of you and planned it out. If He's asked you to change jobs, it's because He's gone ahead of you and seen a better job for you. If He's asked you to move houses, it's because He has picked out a house for you. If you are following Him, that means He is leading you. And if you're following someone who is leading you, they were there before you were, weren't they? Gabriel was reading to me today out of his archaeological Bible. Many foreign gods during this time period would have covenants with their people where they were required to go into a body of water. And if they swam and made it through the body of water, then the God accepted them. If they drowned, then the God didn't accept them. Not a very good God. But the God we serve went into the water ahead of us to make a way through it for us. This is a good God. Twelve men from the tribes of Israel are to go first. Does that sound familiar? How many disciples did Jesus pick? And they were from the tribes of what? They weren't Americans? They weren't British? Sorry, Debbie. They weren't Australian? No, they were, they were Jewish, weren't they? Okay. And as soon as the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Come on, God. You need me to take a step. I need to count you worthy... I need to judge at this river of judgment that your promises are worth action on my part. I want to do it, Lord. I really do. What you are is worth it. But why does the river have to be so wide to cross? Why does it have to be flood stage? Saints, if your faith does not rise to meet the flood waters of life, then what you have is not real faith. The troubles that you face every day cause you to make a decision. Will I trust God and will that trust rise to meet this occasion or will I sink in the middle of this river? And remember, you are nowhere that God has not brought you. So you have every reason to trust Him. You have every reason when things don't look good and the unbelieving husband walks out or your kids won't talk to you or whatever it is. You have every reason to trust Him because He's in the middle of this river with you. It's no surprise it's at flood stage because he's looking for the bigger miracle to show that he's a bigger God. 
what kind of church would pray for small problems so that their God is small? Of course the problems you face are big to show how big our God is. We're facing a river of decision that is the flood stage of life. But remember something. You, as a believer, let's just say an Israelite in this moment, are not going in first. The presence of God in an ark is going first, carried by priests. God has ordained a five-fold ministry, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists, to teach and demonstrate the right way to walk with God so that you will know what to do in trials and in tribulations. If your only relationship with your pastors have been that you've seen them on TV or from such a distance that you can't even really tell what they look like, how are you supposed to learn from their lives how to handle troubles and tribulations? Jesus started with a group of twelve so they could get to know Him. Those twelve went out and got other groups so they could get to know them. The early church met from house to house because the biggest problems that you face are how in my home do I live the gospel and then let that overflow. That's why we've done this. That's not an indictment against other churches. If they do their job well, their ministry is multiplied within its own walls. It's not just one pastor, it's many pastors. I'm not speaking against that. I'm telling you the way God established this was not megastar Christianity. It was not movie star pastors. It was not about building bigger gymnasiums. It was about people learning to follow the presence of God by watching the presence of God on other people. You wonder why you live where you live? You live where you live because God put you in a place where He wanted you to see His presence on people. Learn and be encouraged by it. That's what He wanted. You're not here by an accident today. So the people broke camp to cross the Jordan. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. There is an enemy, and he will try to prevent your crossing. He does not want the wheat to be gathered in the barn. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water was flowing downstream to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completely completed the crossing on dry ground. What you face is a problem of immense proportions. And the enemy is right there lying to you, telling you that it is bigger than it actually is. But it is big. And yet God's Spirit goes ahead of you. And He anoints men and women to carry His presence so that you see when they step foot into the problem, God begins to resolve the problem for them. It keeps up a long distance from them. The Bible says no weapon formed against us will prosper. But it does not say no weapon will be formed. The Jordan will always be at flood stage when you want to do something for God. But if you have the, the faith to step into that water, God will cause it to split a long ways from harming you. 
In fact, He's anointed people right now to stand in the midst of judgment, in the midst of trouble, so that you can see their footing is on dry ground. They have the same problems that I have, and yet they survive. They have the same problems that I have, and yet there is joy. They have the same problems that I have, and yet they are living a fulfilling life so that you can see what you need to do. And God is saying, cross, cross, don't get to the river and turn back. It will heal you like Naaman. He's saying, come on, show me the slightest bit of fruit that shows that you want to repent or turn from your path and I will dry up whatever it is that's hard for you. I'll even go ahead of you. The priest stood there until the whole nation had crossed, but twelve went first. There were twelve faithful Israelis. One of them had to get replaced because he defected who went ahead of us to show us the right way. You find out in the fourth chapter, and I've run out of time to read it to you, but listen, saints, you should read the fourth chapter. That it was not enough for God to go ahead of them. It was not enough for the priesthood to carry an ark ahead of them. He appointed twelve special people. And He said, when you get to the middle, you're the heads of your clans. And when you get to the middle, grab a stone. I want you to grab this stone because we're going to set it up on the other side of the Jordan and we're going to write on it. We're going to write for all of the nations from this point forward that come to this place to see something. We want your children to see these stones and ask, what is the meaning of this? And the meaning of these stones that you special people grab from the middle of the Jordan is that God is to be feared because He delivers His people. The message is that there is one God over all of the earth that we must serve. Saints, God is not looking for people who will just take the step of faith. He's looking for people that see where they are in the midst of the trial and carry with them a testimony that says, I serve a delivering God. The testimony of God is not, I'm blessed. The testimony of God is not, I have a jet. It's not, look how rich I am. It's not that every time I pray, power's there immediately and I'm a magician. The testimony of God is, I've been in the same problems that you are. I've been in the meat grinder of life and yet my God has come through because I have judged Him worthy and I followed Him wherever He told me to go. Saints, what the world needs to see in your actions is that though it means you are slain, you will not love your life so much as to shrink back from following God. The world needs to see in you that you will follow that ark at all costs. God appointed some courageous Israelis to do it first. We call them apostles. And we love them for it. Paul beaten how many times? Shipwrecked how many times? Wrote the book from prison to show us if you follow Him at all costs, there is nothing ahead of you but glory. The greater the suffering in the River Jordan, the greater the glory on the other side. The question is now, saints, now that you know there is a dividing line in your life, now that you know not any river will do, it's only the voice and call of Jesus. What do you do with it? Do you answer that call? Do you go to the other side? Not just once when you're a kid, but every time you face it. Or do you persist in your own way, proclaiming the rivers of some foreign land better than the Israeli river? Preferring your leprosy to restoration, because restoration just is too hard. I beg you, choose life. Choose life. There is life and death set before you. Choose life. 
And those of you that are sure your feet are already on dry ground, carry the stone of that testimony. Don't let your life be a road sign that says God is a joke. Let it be something that says I serve a saving God. His goal was that His people would make the mountains low and the valleys high, create an even playing field where everybody could clearly see the salvation of God. Our lives need to show that. Stand up and let's pray.